Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Grief and Rebirth for what is going to be another interesting and very special Grief and Rebirth podcast interview. It is such a thrill and a true delight to be here with you, introducing you to the enlightening insights of gifted healers, mediums, grief and trauma specialists, and amazing people with their inspiring stories to share. I'm Irene Weinberg, the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth podcast, with a loving reminder that you can see the full show notes in all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce all of you to an incredibly inspiring, very special person, Andrea Wilson-Woods, an author whose nonfiction writing has won national awards, is the author of Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, which chronicles Andrea's sister Adrian's remarkable life from the time she was born to the day she died at age 15 from stage four liver cancer. Andrea is a patient advocate who founded a nonprofit called Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. And she is also the co-founder and CEO of Cancer University, a for-profit social benefit digital health company. Welcome Andrea to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Wow, you have so much to share with all of us. This is surely going to be a fascinating interview. Let's begin with this question about you and your sister, Adrian, who you wrote about in your book, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please tell us how you ended up with custody of your sister, Adrian, from your mom, and how did your relationship with Adrian evolve over time? Well, before I answer the question, thank you for having me, Irene. I really appreciate it. And I'm just so thrilled and delighted to be here. Um, the way I got custody of Adrian was she came out to visit me in Los Angeles. That's where I moved after I graduated from high school and I went to college there and I stayed. And she was visiting me for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation in December of 1994. And the day after Christmas, my mother called and said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. And she had been really struggling. My mother was a prescription drug addict and I didn't really recognize that in high school. And she had um, lost her job. She had been a nurse and had lost her nursing license. And she had been moving my sister around a lot. And at that point, she, her life was very unstable. It was also a few days before her 50th birthday. So I don't know if it was a combination of a midlife crisis as well, but she didn't want to be a mother anymore, and she did not want me to put my sister back on the plane to go home. Wow. Yeah, and I was 22 years old. Oh. And my, yeah, and my sister was eight. And I just told my mother, um, 
having seen what had happened over the last like two years at that point with my sister and being moved and shuffled around from one state to another, I just said, well, if I take her now, I'm not going to give her back. I will fight you for custody. And my mother was like, oh yeah, whatever. And that's what ended up happening. I took physical custody immediately. And then eventually we did go to court um, and I fought for legal custody and I won. Where were you originally from, Andrea? I grew up all over the Southeast. I was an Air Force brat. And then when my parents divorced, so Adrian and I have the same mother, but different fathers. Um, my mother was actually engaged to Adrian's father, but he died in a very tragic car accident. And then my mother and I moved to Alabama, which is where my mother's from. And so I went to high school in Birmingham and that's where Adrian was born. Wow. So add to all your mother's other issues, a lot of unresolved grief. A lot of unresolved grief. Absolutely. Wow. And talk about grief. I mean, look what she, what you inherited with all of that. Yeah. Very difficult. Um, wow. Um, facing the fight of her life, Adrian discovered just how much she wanted to live. Can you tell us about that? Yes. And I think our, my cat's going to interrupt this interview, but I'm going to keep going. You know, when Adrian was diagnosed, she made this bucket list and she didn't show it to me. I never acknowledged it. Subconsciously, I understood what she was doing, but she made a list of everything she'd ever wanted to do and made things happen. I mean, by the second month of her illness, she was meeting her favorite musician, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction. And that's because she found out he was going to be on The Tonight Show, which at that time was still hosted by Jay Leno and was still being taped in Burbank, California, which is where we lived. And before I knew it, she and her boyfriend had gotten eight tickets to the show for the three of us. And I mean, she just did things like that. And it was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to do that. When she would go to the hospital for her chemo, she would tell the doctors and nurses, you know, I have to be out by this day because I've got things to do. I have plans. And, you know, I think she just knew. And my, my cat is joining the interview. People can't see, but the cat, the cat has joined the interview. <laughs> Maybe Adrian is having her jump up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> you say your sister was one of the most inspiring people you've ever known. What's the greatest lesson she taught you? Oh, she taught me to just embrace life, embrace the life that you have, and, and without a doubt, live in the moment. Um, you can't change the past. You can't even change what happened yesterday. So you have, you have to move on. And I'm a little sad to say that it, for 10 years, I really didn't take that lesson to heart. I really had a hard time. And there's a difference between letting go of the past and not dwelling in it. And it just took me so long because I was so deep in my grief to start living in the present and looking forward to things. Um, but, but I do take that to heart now. And, um, and I do take a lot more risk than I used to. And I do reach out to people more, but, but I, I was, you know, grieving for a very, very long time. You had so much to grieve. Not only did you have with Adrian, but you know, the situation with your mom, with your dad, you had layer on layer on layer. Yeah. It must have been so hard. 
Yeah. Have you felt aging around you since she died? Um, I did initially for about six months to a year in the house. So Adrian died at home. I, I feel like that's one of the best gifts I gave her was I fought her doctors to get her home. I made sure she was never on a respirator. So she died at home, surrounded by people who loved her, um, not in pain, not hooked up to any machines whatsoever. And so I definitely felt her presence. In fact, I wrote the first draft of the book in her room. And, um, and so it was very special. That? Did, she What's know, that? did she know you were doing that? I don't know, but I definitely felt her there. And it was, we turned the room into a guest room in the house, but I mean, it was everyone's favorite room in the whole house because it just felt like she was still in the, there was a presence there. And, um, but I don't feel her around me as much anymore. Um, but I do talk to her a lot more than I used to. Well, she's probably, got, she's probably very busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, what I, that's what I tell myself like whatever plane of existence she's on I tell myself that a year here is probably like you know it might be like a day there so for her she's only been gone like two and a half weeks <laughs> yeah, she wants. she's having a blast <laughs> yeah yeah she's really busy right now so. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. We're going to take a quick break to allow a minute for our sponsors who keep this podcast free for our listeners. We'll be right back. We're back. Thanks for tuning in to my touching and inspiring interview today with Andrea. Let's continue on with this question. Andrea, you lost the most important person in your life to a devastating disease. Have you discovered a right or wrong way to grieve? I know you talk about the fact that for so many years, it was so hard for you to let go. So does grief have a timeline? No, I, I would never um, pretend to tell someone else how to grieve and, and grief doesn't have a timeline. I think you have to, you have to sort of figure out what works for you. I remember one time I saw um, a Dr. Phil episode and he was telling this woman that what she was doing was destroying her life because she was, um, she still had her son's room. She still had his things. He died very young, and he and um, and and he was pushing this woman so hard. And I think the harder someone pushes you like that, especially when it's a child, it, you know, the more you resist. And you know, there were people in my life who did not understand, and there were people in my life who just gave me the space that I needed. And I and I did need a, a lot of of space, you know, and. I haven't let go, but I've moved forward. And that's, um, and that's, that's not easy to do. Do you know what I mean? I understand that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, they, they, they talk a lot about that, about stages of grief and all of that. And one, yeah. one of the thing I think, and one of it is that you still got one, one stage is when you still have one foot in the past, but you are moving. Yeah. You're peeking your head out of that hole and going forward. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, Did your friendships change after you lost Adrian? Yeah, they did. I, I, I have lost every friend I had. Every friend you had? Every friend I had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had, I had a very close knit group of friends um, when I was raising Adrian and they were all, we called her, called them our aunts and uncles and they are in the book and I've changed all their names and sort of one by one, some people dropped off immediately, like within a year. Um, some people, it took a few more years, um, but I, I lost all the friends and there was only one friendship that I 
purposely, intentionally ended because it was in my best interest, but all the others just for you. It was just like a toxic friendship. It was, yeah. Over time it became toxic for reasons that were completely unrelated to Adrian dying. But um, but all the other friendships that some people just faded away, walked away, disappeared, stopped calling. Um, my best friend from high school um never spoke to me again until I saw her at a high school reunion. Um it, it was dev- it was actually devastating for me. Losing those friendships was almost as difficult as losing Adrian. That's more grief. No wonder it's been so hard for you. I mean, now you're grieving friendships on top of that. Did that your friend and I from high school say anything to you or did she avoid you? Um, Well, I was the chair of the committee, so So she was, yeah, she did avoid me, but I mean, I was polite to her because I was the chair. I wasn't going to be a jerk, but um, but we don't have any relationship whatsoever. But I mean, when I needed her most, she absolutely disappeared. But do you think it's because she herself couldn't handle it? Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people become so uncomfortable. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. So they kind of just disappear yeah. or they can't understand it. So let me ask you, for those in our listening audience who have friends who are grieving, what advice would you give them? Um, you know, I listened to one of your podcasts. It was earlier this year. So earlier it was in 2019. Um, and it was a woman who founded, um, a grief counseling service via text. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, put that in the show notes. (laughs) I, I think, I think that a lot of the people I was friends with, they could have used something like that because I couldn't comfort them, right? I needed them to comfort me and I wasn't able to comfort them. And although I tried my best, I mean, my, that first year, man, I put on a fake smile for everybody. I tried so hard and after a year, I just couldn't do it anymore. And, um, you know, something like that, but just, I guess, just know that the person who experienced the loss, it's not their job to comfort you. Sorry. You have to go to outside. You need to go find your own grief counselor or whatever. But the person who's experiencing the great loss, they, they can't. It's, they're incapable of doing it. And I think part of the problem was, or not problem, issue was in my circle of friends, I was always the leader. I was always the organizer. I was always the point person for everything, absolutely everything. And without me being sort of, you know, on my game, my friends didn't know what to do. They couldn't relate to you. It was a different person they were relating to in a way. Yeah. They didn't know what to do when I wasn't, when I was no longer sort of me, if you will. Yeah. I have found in my own life too, that sometimes if I'm going through something and I change in some ways, people get angry with me. It sounds like you and I have the same kind of a because they, they count on me for the role I play in their lives. And when I'm overwhelmed and I can't quite just do it in that moment, they get annoyed. Yeah. They get mad. Yeah. I just, Dr. Seuss said, um, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. <laughs> that's a good one. I know. And that's, down. and that's how I make my friends now. I mean, I've made um, much better friends now uh, in my 40s and and that's and they're much deeper friendships, and I look for people who like me no matter what you know, no matter you know what kind of mood I'm in, how I'm feeling, they like me no matter what. 
Well, it's about acceptance mm-hmm. and non-judgment. Yes. And that's part of it. And Emma talks a lot about that. I'm going to refer, I think I'm going to connect you two guys because that's, she's a wonderful person and her text messaging service. We talked a lot about that and that is very helpful for people yeah. who are, who are grieving, who don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, do you have, could you tell us about Blue Fairy and Cancer University, including why you're so passionate about the importance of empowering cancer patients and their caregivers to become advocates for themselves? How much time do we have, Irene? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> uh, sure. So I'll start with Blue Fairy. Um, about a year after Adrian died, and like I said, I couldn't fake it anymore. I really was at my wit's end. And so I was looking for a way to channel my grief. And, and, and that's just the way I handled it. And so I wanted to volunteer for what was at that time the largest liver disease organization in the U.S. And I'm not going to say who they are because we have a good relationship with them. Um, But at that time, they didn't do anything with liver cancer. And so it really came down to nobody was doing anything in primary liver cancer anywhere in the U.S. And um, Lily Tomlin has a great saying that when something like, I realized um, nobody was doing anything about it. Or I realized somebody needed to do something about that. And I realized that somebody was me. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And so I um, started a nonprofit when I was 30. And um, it is in Adrian's memory. So it's Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. And our mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, which is by far the most common form of liver cancer, through research, education, advocacy. And so we do a a lot of patient education and advocacy, um, but we also have a research award that we give out every year on Adrian's birthday in April. And um, we are a national organization. We have a bit of an international outreach just because our website translates into 10 other languages targeted at that liver cancer population. We ship our brochures anywhere in the world as long as we have a valid address that can be a little bit of a problem in Africa, but otherwise it's been, it's been fine. Our brochures are translated into Spanish and Chinese. Um, and I mean, anytime a patient or a caregiver calls, I still to this day, even though I have an incredible volunteer staff, I still take those phone calls personally and, and talk to them and, um, and kind of guide them through. We have an online HIPAA compliant community specifically for patients and caregivers um, and I think that's one of the things we also do very well is that we include caregivers in the conversation. We realize that caregivers tend to do the majority of the research and the outreach and gathering of information. Um, and so you, you have to include caregivers in the conversation. Um, and I'm really happy to say that since my sister was diagnosed, especially just in the last two to three years, there are a lot more options for um, patients with advanced liver cancer. It's still palliative care, um, but um, it's an improvement for sure. So there are people being diagnosed with advanced liver cancer that are actually living, you know, three years and sometimes four years, um, which is just phenomenal and and very unusual. And when my sister was diagnosed, I mean, that's why it's called a life in 147 days, because that's how long she lived with the diagnosis. That was it. Amazing. Yeah, That's unbelievable. And you know, caregivers, I can really understand how hard it is for caregivers. And yeah. they're grieving too, and they're going through all kinds of things. Now, has this organization, Blue Fairy, um, 
have you, when people donate to it, does this go towards research and helping find yes. greater options for yes. um, these patients and the caregivers dealing with this liver cancer? Yes, so it is a nonprofit, so all donations are 100% tax deductible, and we are still, like I said, 100% volunteer driven. Um, so we keep our overhead incredibly low. We have two virtual offices, one in Los Angeles, California, because we're still a California-based charity, and one in Birmingham, Alabama, but that's only because I'm based out of Birmingham, Alabama now. Um, but um, our medical advisory board is located all over the U.S. Um, our board of directors is all over the U.S., so thankfully, we have a great technology that allows us to do that today. So how is Blue Fairy different than Cancer University? Well, Cancer University came out of um, a pattern I was seeing with Blue Fairy. So um, when I was raising Adrian, I was a teacher. And then after she died, I got my master's degree in writing and I became an adjunct professor for a period of time. And, um, and so my background is teaching and writing. And then I also became a certified coach. So also the coaching element. And I was finding myself, like I said, I talked to patients and caregivers. I was finding myself coaching them. And, and I still do pro bono to this day. And when I got my coaching certification, I was even being approached on LinkedIn to become a cancer coach. Mm. And I did not want to charge people at the most difficult time in their lives to be a coach, but there's no question that people need that, that extra help because even when people are given the best possible information, and we, we know there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, I can't tell you how much pay, uh, doctors hate Dr. Google, as they call it. <laughs> but even when, when patients have the best information, 95% of the time, I realized they didn't know what to do with it. You know, they would say, okay, well, now what? What's next? You know, and um, it kind of reminded me of my best friend from college. She was so obsessed when she was pregnant with her first child. And she read that, um, what to expect when you're expecting. And she was so obsessed with her pregnancy, she never thought about what came next. And she actually she said after her pregnancy, but then the, the child arrived. The child, went, right? Oh. <laughs> and she, and seriously, and she said after her son was born, she looked at me, and this was uh, a year after Adrian died, and she knew how much I had raised Adrian, even when Adrian was a baby. She looked at me and she said, what's next? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, but I, I didn't read the book about how to raise a baby. I mean, she was just stunned, right? And, and still kind of in shock. And, and, um, and that's, but that's what it is for patients and caregivers. I mean, you can be the most educated person on the planet. It doesn't matter because you go into shock when you hear that C word. That's right. And, yeah. And then on top of that, you are expected to make these very rational, intelligent decisions about treatment. Sometimes within days, I, I had to make a decision within, within days. And, and then doctors speak in acronyms. I call it the alphabet soup of cancer. And so um, I was getting very frustrated by this. I didn't want to become a cancer coach. It was clear to me that patients and caregivers needed coaching. They needed teaching and training. And I really, um, I meditate every day and I chant every night. So I really started meditating and chanting specifically on this. Like what is missing? There's so much out there for cancer patients and caregivers, but clearly something's missing. And I kept thinking, wow, it's like, you have to go back to school. And it just hit me. It was like, oh my gosh, you need to go to Cancer University. That's it. And I ended, ended up entering this entrepreneurial competition 
sponsored by Estellas, a farm school company, um, in partnership with Robert Herchevec from Shark Tank. His mother died of ovarian cancer, and so he's very passionate about anything that helps with cancer care. And I had nothing but a concept. I threw together a web page. I threw together a two-minute video, I mean, and because I, I came up with the idea, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this, this contest closes in two weeks. And um, out of over 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10, and, uh, which was phenomenal. And then, yeah, and then I got to interview with the Estelle's executives, and I knew I wasn't going to make it to the finals because I didn't have anything beyond concept, but they loved it. They got it. And I knew I was onto something. And so then I, I just spent six months vetting the idea. And I spoke to patients and caregivers and survivors, and advocates and doctors, even people I trust in pharma. I mean, I have so many relationships that I've built over the years with my nonprofit. And I really just kept coming to people and saying, okay, can, you know, is there space for this? Does it make sense? And every single person came back with yes. And if I had gotten one no, I don't think I would have done it, really, because I knew it was going to be very difficult. Um, but I didn't get a single no. Really, and heart-wrenching. I mean, you're dealing with these people who are panicked, and, and what do I do? And I heard about you, and oh, my God, I'm faced with all these yeah. life-changing decisions. Exactly. I don't know where to start. Yeah. Um, so we officially founded last year as an LLC. I found a co-founder who has different strengths than I do, um, and actually has a completely different background. So that was really helpful as well. And we did a beta test and, um, now we're about to lock down a pilot. We're just signing the papers with one of the largest NCI centers in the country. And, um, and the goal really is we don't want any cancer patients or caregivers to pay for the program. If you go on the website right now, there's actually the main website and the member website, you will see an option to pay, but we don't want you to because the people who save the most money when you, the patients, are highly involved in your treatment decisions and you're asking the right questions um, are the health insurance companies and the hospitals. So ultimately, we're really a B2B company. Our customers are the health insurance companies and the hospitals and even pharmaceutical companies. But the end users of our membership platform are cancer patients and caregivers. That's amazing. Thank and I'm you. sure a lot of our listeners are going to be going, wow, this, I mean, you hope they don't need it. But obviously, in this world, many people do. And I mean, I, for one, if something like that happened to someone in my family, I'd make a beeline for someone like you. Help. You know, can you, can you push me? Well, how do I do this? I'm feeling this emotion. I, I don't know where to turn. Now, uh, do you get solicited a lot by these doctors? And tell them to seek me out. Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's a good question. I don't think anyone's asked us yet. No, um, doctors really love it because they love the idea that all content's curated. So we have a patient and caregiver advocate board, and we have a medical advisory board, and all of our pre-recorded courses, those tend to be the longer content, four to six hours, they have video and audio and worksheets, all of that pre-recorded content um, is done by our outside contractors, then it goes to our patient and caregiver advocate board to review, and then it goes to our medical advisory board for that final medical review. Um, and then our workshops, those are more like live workshops, um, 
webinars, trainings. Um, it might be like meet the expert with a doctor. Those are things we record live, but then they get stored as um, permanent content inside our membership library. So it's very much like an online university where based on you, your loved one's diagnosis, that's your major. So for me, it would be liver cancer. Um, but I have to take the orientation. So the orientation is our flagship course called the Proactive Patient. And it's a broad orientation to cancer. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of is that course by itself, that six-hour course, puts you miles ahead of, of the average patient. So if you only take our orientation, you will be so far ahead and so prepared and it's broken down in really, you know, bite-sized chunks. And it's not at a college level. It's easy to understand. And we also have a community as well. So we have a, so it's like a support community. Yes. Yeah. We have a support community as part of it. And we're still building it out. I mean, we're working on an app because we've been asked about an app. We're working on Spanish because we've been asked about Spanish. Um, so we're still working on the technology, but it's it's really exciting. That is wonderful. Could you, you give me a few titles of other workshops that you have and the videos so people get a flavor of what they can learn from? Sure. Is there, you know, just so, so, you know, and do they also um, deal with the emotional issues of um, I'm exhausted, I'm grieving, I'm this, I'm that? Okay, I just like that. Those titles, I'm going to write them down right now. <laughs> Um, so we have things like meet the experts. So those would be, you know, an expert from one of our partners. It might be a hospital we're partnering with. And so they have, you know, oncologist who wants to talk about a particular procedure um, or just what his role is on the tumor board. Um, you know, again, we're trying to break this down for people so they really, really understand. And um, we have membership, a member spotlight. So that is a spotlight on an actual member who wants to share their story. And we're starting with our patient and caregiver advocate board members because they all are there and they want to share their stories. And um, yeah, I'm sure are, some of them are success stories, how you help them and, and what happened. They are su success stories and, um, and, and they're just amazing stories. Um, it's very interesting because there's a mix of caregivers, a mix of patients, and the patients are all survivors the caregivers, um, some of the patients survived and some didn't. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, we have things like for the core courses. So we do have core courses, which are kind of like your general education requirements in college. So things like Nutrition 101, um, Palliative Care 200. Um, that was a big one, too, that doctors asked about. Um, doctors don't know how to talk about palliative care. Um, they don't know how to talk about hospice. And those two things are actually very different but people get them confused all the time. So and for our listeners, why don't you tell us the difference between palliative, palliative care and hospice? Sure. So palliative care, you can have any time during your cancer journey. And the whole goal of palliative care is to reduce suffering. And it's much more holistic. So the idea is how can we reduce suffering and what are all the ways we could reduce suffering? So will physical therapy help your particular situation? Um, would massage help? Um, you know, would herbal medications help as well? Um, it's really like, how can we reduce suffering? Hospice, however, you have to have been given a medical diagnosis where you have six months or less to live. And hospice, you might be doing hospice at home. You might be doing it at a facility. Um, 
you usually have a lot more options with hospice than you realize, and people don't know that. Um, but with hospice, a doctor has gone on the record and said that he or she believes you have less than six months to live. With hospice, um, you are not supposed to, for example, if you're, I can use my grandfather, for example, he was on hospice, but it was not explained to my grandmother that, you know, she wasn't supposed to call an ambulance. You know, she wasn't supposed to call an ambulance. He was on hospice. So the idea is that, you know, he will be at home and he will die at home and have a very peaceful death. But no one told her that, you know, and, and, and it's these things that just fall through the cracks. I mean, it really just this lack of education. No one, yeah, no one thought to mention that to her. And had she called, an, I mean, someone intervened and told her, but had she called an ambulance, the EMTs would have had to, you know, do what they, they, they would have had to. To bring him back. Yeah, the resuscitate him. Mm-hmm. They would have had to. But that kind of defeats the whole purpose of hospice, you know? And I forget what the actual percentage is. It's crazy high. The amount of um, money we spend as a country in the last 18 months of life. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so I, um, when I'm speaking to a patient, not the caregiver, but an actual patient, and they have a true understanding of their disease they know what stage they're in. Um, you'd be surprised how many people don't, but they do know. I always ask, ask them, what is more important to you, how you live or how long you live? Mm-hmm. And there's no wrong answer. It's what's right for you. And a lot of that's going to depend on where you are in life, right? I mean, a 32-year-old is probably going to have a different answer than an 82-year-old. Yeah, but also you'll have an 82-year-old who's still mad about the fact that she's not going to see 90. Yeah, of course. So so as, you, as long as you can answer that question, again, doesn't matter which answer you have, but answering that very basic question will help you determine your treatment. Mm-hmm. If you've been given a, a terminal, let's say, diagnosis. That's really fascinating. That's really great information. I love, I love the whole concept of that. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I'm thinking already of different people who we've already interviewed who I should connect with you because oh, you would love that. Help, with each, help each other and help so many people. Angie, what is your message about the importance of healing to share with our listeners? Oh, because um, you've done a lot of it on your own. I think healing takes time, but it also it comes from a place of self-love. And I had to learn how to love myself. That's so true. Yeah. Thank you. And our listeners now all want to reach you. (laughs) So give them all your your contact information and tell them how to get a hold of your book and, you know, how how they can reach out to you. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, Well, to get the book, you can go to Better Off Bald, B-E-T-T-E-R, O-F-F-B-A-L-D, yeah, .com, betteroffball.com. And it will have all the links to all the retailers, just in case you don't like Amazon. There are other places you can buy the book. Uh, to reach me personally, you can just go to andreawilsonwoods.com or I'm Andrea Wilson Woods on almost every social media outlet or Andrea Will Woods if it's Twitter or Instagram. Um, for Blue Fairy, go to bluefairy.org. It's B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y.org. 
And for Cancer University, it's actually cancer.university. That's the actual extension, .university. And I have a, um, a gift for your listeners. Oh, I'm sure they'll be delighted. What would that be? Okay. So I'd love to give them a free lifetime membership to Cancer U. Hopefully they won't need it. But um, if you or a loved one is a newly diagnosed cancer patient or you're the caregiver of a newly diagnosed cancer patient, you can go to cancer.university. Anywhere where you see the button apply now, click that button and you will immediately go to the membership application. And when you scroll to the bottom, just click that little button that says, I have a coupon code and put in your coupon code, which will be grief and rebirth, all caps, all one word. That's your coupon code and it will waive the fee. And I'm sure Irene will have a link to it in the show. Oh, we will definitely do that. Um, what is your tip for finding joy in life, girl? Well, I did think about this now. <laughs> I listened to a lot of episodes. I thought about, um, I think it helps that joy is one of my core values. And what that means to me is, is having fun and just finding humor in any situation. And I like to think that I taught Adrian that as well, because she always seemed to find humor. And we had a, kind of joke in our house was um, from a league of their own, there's no crying in baseball. So a joke in our house was always like, there's no crying in whatever. There's no crying during homework. There's no crying, you know, during whatever. And so, because I did not tolerate whining at all and it was a no whining zone in the house. And so, <laughs> so we actually, when she was diagnosed, we would joke around um, when it was just the two of us, there's no crying during chemo, you know, there's no crying during this. And um, so I think to find joy, it has to be important to you because sometimes you have to actively look for it. It's not always easy. And I do keep a gratitude journal and I do fill it out every single night. And there are some days it's very easy and other days where I'm like, I'm thankful for today. <laughs> That's all I put. <laughs> for the changes you're making in so many people's lives, I think many people would be grateful for you. Aww. I really, I really do. Thank you. Um, you've touched so many hearts on Grief and Rebirth podcast today. I'm sure of it. Your journey with your sister and the ways you've turned that tragedy into a blessing for so many, including yourself is filled with lessons and inspiration for all of us. And in the spirit of learning and inspiration, here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irenweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for joining us. And as I like to say, to be continued, Bye for now. <laughs>